It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 21 and 22 from A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. And now chapter 21, The Pilgrims. When I did get to bed at last, I was unspeakably tired. The stretching out and the relaxing of the long, tense muscles, how luxurious, how delicious. But that was as far as I could get. Sleep was out of the question for the present. The ripping and tearing and squealing of the nobility up and down the halls and corridors was pandemonium come again, and kept me broad awake. Being awake, my thoughts were busy, of course, and mainly they busied themselves with Sandy's curious delusion. Here she was, as sane a person as the kingdom could produce, and yet, from my point of view, she was acting like a crazy woman. My land, the power of training, of influence, of education— "'It can bring a body up to believe anything. "'I had to put myself in Sandy's place "'to realize that she was not a lunatic. "'Yes, and put her in mine, "'to demonstrate how easy it is to seem a lunatic "'to a person who has not been taught as you have been taught. "'If I had told Sandy I had seen a wagon, "'uninfluenced by enchantment, "'spin along fifty miles an hour, "'had seen a man, unequipped with magic powers, "'get into a basket and soar out of sight among the clouds.' and had listened, without any necromancer's help, to the conversation of a person who is several hundred miles away. Sandy would not merely have supposed me to be crazy, she would have thought she knew it. Everybody around her believed in enchantments. Nobody had any doubts. To doubt that a castle could be turned into a sty, and its occupants into hogs, would have been the same as my doubting among Connecticut people the actuality of the telephone and its wonders. And in both cases— would be absolute proof of a diseased mind, an unsettled reason. Yes, Sandy was sane, that must be admitted. If I also would be sane, to Sandy, I must keep my superstitions about unenchanted and unmiraculous locomotives, balloons, and telephones, to myself. Also, I believed that the world was not flat, and hadn't pillars under it to support it nor a canopy over it to turn off a universe of water that occupied all space above. But as I was the only person in the kingdom afflicted with such impious and criminal opinions, I recognized that it would be good wisdom to keep quiet about this matter too, if I did not wish to be suddenly shunned and forsaken by everybody as a madman. The next morning Sandy assembled the swine in the dining room and gave them their breakfast, waiting upon them personally and manifesting in every way the deep reverence which the natives of her island, ancient and modern, have always felt for rank. Let its outward casket and the mental and moral contents be what they may. 
"'I could have eaten with the hogs "'if I had had Bert approaching my lofty official rank, "'but I hadn't, "'and so accepted the unavoidable slight "'and made no complaint. "'Sandy and I had our breakfast at the second table. "'The family were not at home. "'I said, "'How many are in the family, Sandy, "'and where do they keep themselves?' "'Family?' "'Yes. "'Which family, good my lord?' "'Why, this family, your own family.' "'Sooth to say, I understand you not. I have no family.' "'No family? Why, Sandy, isn't this your home?' "'Now how indeed might that be? I have no home.' "'Well, then, whose house is this?' "'Ah, would you well, I would tell you, if I knew myself.' "'Come, you don't even know these people? Then, then who invited us here?' "'None invited us. We but came, that is all.' "'Why, woman, this is a most extraordinary performance. "'The effrontery of it is beyond imagination. "'We blandly march into a man's house "'and cram it full of the only really valuable nobility "'the sun has yet discovered in the earth, "'and then it turns out that we don't even know the man's name. "'How did you ever venture to take this extravagant liberty? "'I just assumed, of course, it was your home. "'What will the man say?' "'What will he say? "'Forsooth, what can he say but give thanks?' "'Thanks for what?' "'Her face was filled with a puzzled surprise. "'Verily, thou troublest mine understanding with strange words. "'Do ye dream that one of his estate "'is like to have the honour twice in his life "'to entertain companies such as we "'have brought to grace his house withal? "'Well, no, when you come to that, no. "'No, it's an even bet that this is the first time "'he's had a treat like this.' "'Then let him be thankful.' "'and manifest the same by grateful speech and due humility. "'He were a dog else, and the heir and ancestor of dogs. "'To my mind the situation was uncomfortable. "'It might become more so. "'It might be a good idea to muster the hogs and move on. "'So I said, "'The day is wasting, Sandy. "'It's time to get the nobility together and be moving. "'Wherefore, fair sir and boss? "'We want to take them to their home, don't we?' "'La, but list to him. "'They'd be of all the regions of the earth. "'Each must hide to her own home. "'Wend you, we might do all these journeys "'in one so brief a life as he hath appointed "'that created life, "'and thereto death likewise with help of Adam, "'who by sin done through persuasion of his helpmeet, "'she being wrought upon and bewrayed "'by the beguilements of the great enemy of man, "'that serpent of Satan, "'aforetime consecrated and set apart "'into that evil work by overmastering spite and envy,' "'begotten in his heart through fell ambitions "'that did blight and mildew a nature erst so white and pure. "'Whence so it hove with the shining multitudes, "'its brethren born in glade and shade "'of that fair heaven wherein all such as native "'be to that rich estate and... "'Great Scott! "'My lord! "'Well, you know we haven't got time for this sort of thing. "'Don't you see? "'We could distribute these people around the earth "'in less time than it's going to take you "'to explain that we can't.' "'We mustn't talk now. We must act. "'You want to be careful. "'You mustn't let your mill get the start of you that way, "'at a time like this. "'To business now, and sharp's the word. "'Who is to take the aristocracy home?' "'Even their friends. "'These will come for them from the far parts of the earth.' "'This was lightning from a clear sky, for unexpectedness, "'and the relief of it was like pardon to a prisoner. "'She would remain to deliver the goods, of course. "'Well then, Sandy.' As our enterprise is handsomely and successfully ended, I will go home and report, 
and if ever another one... I also am ready. I will go with thee. This was recalling the pardon. How? How will you go with me? Why should you? Will I be traitor to my knight, dost think? That were dishonor. I may not part from thee until in knightly encounter in the field some overmatching champion shall fairly win and fairly wear me. I were to blame, and I thought that that might ever happen. <sighs> Elected for the long term, I said to myself. I may as well make the best of it. So then I spoke up and said, All right, let us make a start. While she was gone to cry her farewells over the pork, I gave that whole peerage away to the servants, and I asked them to take a duster and dust around a little where the nobilities had mainly lodged and promenaded. But they considered that that would be hardly worth while, and would moreover be a rather grave departure from custom, and therefore likely to make talk. A departure from custom. That settled it. It was a nation capable of committing any crime but that. The servants said they would follow the fashion, a fashion grown sacred through immemorial observance. They would scatter fresh rushes in all the rooms and halls, and then the evidence of the aristocratic visitation would be no longer visible. It was a kind of satire on nature. It was the scientific method, the geologic method. It deposited the history of the family in a stratified record, and the antiquary could dig through it and tell by the remains of each period what changes of diet the family had introduced successfully for a hundred years. The first thing we struck that day was a procession of pilgrims. It was not going our way, but we joined it, nevertheless, for it was hourly being borne in upon me now, that if I would govern this country wisely, I must be posted in the details of its life, and not at second hand, but by personal observation and scrutiny. This company of pilgrims resembled Chaucer's in this, that it had in it a sample of about all the upper occupations and professions the country could show, and a corresponding variety of costume. There were young men and old men, young women and old women, lively folk and grave folk. They rode upon mules and horses, and there was not a side-saddle in the party, for this specialty was to remain unknown in England for nine hundred years yet. It was a pleasant, friendly, sociable herd, pious, happy, merry, and full of unconscious coarsenesses and innocent indecencies. What they regarded as the merry tale went the continual round and caused no more embarrassment than it would have caused in the best English society twelve centuries later. Practical jokes worthy of the English wits of the first quarter of the far-off nineteenth century were sprung here and there and yonder along the line, and compelled the delightest applause. And sometimes when a bright remark was made at one end of the procession, and started on its travels toward the other, you could note its progress all the way by the sparkling spray of laughter it threw off from its boughs as it plowed along, and also by the blushes of the mules in its wake. Sandy knew the goal and purpose of this pilgrimage, and she posted me. She said, They journeyed to the Valley of Holiness, for to be blessed of the godly hermits, and drink of the miraculous waters, and be cleansed from sin. Where is this watering place? It lieth the two-day journey hence, by the borders of the land that hight the Cuckoo Kingdom. Tell me about it. Is it a celebrated place? Oh, of a truth, yes. There be none more so. Of old time there lived there an abbot and his monks. Belike were none in the world more holy than these, for they gave themselves to study of pious books, and spoke not the one to the other, or indeed to any, and ate decayed herbs and not thereto, 
and slept hard, and prayed much, and washed never. Also they wore the same garment until it fell from their bodies through age and decay. Right so came they to be known of all the world by reason of these holy austerities, and visited by rich and poor, and reverenced. Proceed. But always there was a lack of water there, whereas, upon a time, the holy abbot prayed, and for answer a great stream of clear water burst forth by miracle in a desert place. Now were the Finkel monks tempted of the fiend, and they wrought with their abbot unceasingly by beggings and beseechings that he would construct a bath, and when he was become a weary and might not resist more, he said, Have ye your will then, and granted whatever they asked. Now mark thou what tis to forsake the ways of purity, the which he loveth, and wanton with such as be worldly and an offense. These monks did enter into the bath, and come thence washed as white as snow, and lo, in that moment his sign appeared, in miraculous rebuke, for his insulted waters ceased to flow, and utterly vanished away. They fared mildly, Sandy, considering how that kind of crime is regarded in this country. Belike, but it was their first sin, and they had been a perfect life for long, and differing in naught from the angels. Prayers, tears, torturings of the flesh, all was vain to beguile that water to flow again. Even processions, even burnt offerings, even votive candles to the virgin, did fail every inch of them, and all in the land did marvel. How odd to find that even this industry has its financial panics, and at times sees its assignats and greenbacks languish to zero, and everything come to a standstill. Go on, Sandy. And so upon a time, after year and day, the good abbot made humble surrender and destroyed the bath. And behold, his anger was in that moment appeased, and the waters gushed richly forth again, and even to this day they have not ceased to flow in that generous measure. Then I take it nobody has washed since. He that would essay it could have his halter free, yes, and swiftly would he need it too. And the community has prospered since? Even from that very day, the fame of the miracle went abroad into all lands. From every land came monks to join. They came even as the fishes come, in shoals, and the monastery added building to building, and yet others to these, and so spread wide its arms and took them in. And nuns came also, and more again, and yet more, and built over against the monastery on the yon side of the vale, and added building to building, until mighty was that nunnery. And these were friendly unto those, and they joined their loving labors together, and together they built a fair great founding asylum midway of the valley between. You spoke of some hermits, Sandy. These have gathered there from the ends of the earth. A hermit thriveth best, where there be multitudes of pilgrims. You shall not find no hermit of no sort wanting. If any shall mention a hermit of a kind, he thinketh new and not to be found, but in some far strange land. Let him but scratch among the holes and caves and swamps that line that valley of holiness, and whatsoever be his breed, it skills not. He shall find a sample of it there. I closed up alongside of a burly fellow with a fat, good-humored face, proposing to make myself agreeable and pick up some further crumbs of fact, but I'd hardly more than scraped acquaintance with him when he began eagerly and awkwardly to lead up, in the immemorial way, to that same old anecdote. The one Sir Dinadan told me, what time I got into trouble with Sir Sagramore and was challenged of him on account of it. 
I excused myself and dropped to the rear of the procession, sad at heart, willing to go hence from this troubled life, this veil of tears, this brief day of broken rest, of cloud and storm, of weary struggle and monotonous defeat, and yet shrinking from the change, as remembering how long eternity is, and how many have wended thither who know that anecdote. Early in the afternoon we overtook another procession of pilgrims, but in this one was no merriment, no jokes, no laughter, no playful ways, nor any happy giddiness, whether of youth or age. Yet both were here, both age and youth, gray old men and women, strong men and women of middle age, young husbands, young wives, little boys and girls, and three babies at the breast. Even the children were smileless. There was not a face among all these half a hundred people but was cast down and bore that set expression of hopelessness which is bred of long and hard trials and old acquaintance with despair. They were slaves. Chains led from their fettered feet and their manacled hands to a sole leather belt above their waist, and all except the children were also linked together in a file six feet apart by a single chain which led from collar to collar all down the line. They were on foot and had trampled three hundred miles in eighteen days upon the cheapest odds and ends of food and stingy rations at that. They had slept in these chains every night, bundled together like swine. They had upon their bodies some poor rags, but they could not be said to be clothed. Their irons had shaped the skin from their ankles and made sores which were ulcerated and wormy. Their naked feet were torn, and none walked without a limp. Originally there had been a hundred of these unfortunates, but about half had been sold on the trip. The trader in charge of them rode a horse and carried a whip with a short handle and a long heavy lash divided into several knotted tails at the end. With this whip he cut the shoulders of any that tottered from weariness and pain and straightened them up. He did not speak. The whip conveyed his desire without that. None of these poor creatures looked up as we rode along by. They showed no consciousness of our presence, and they made no sound but one, that was the dull and awful clank of their chains from end to end of the long file, as forty-three burdened feet rose and fell in unison. The file moved in a cloud of its own making. All these faces were gray with a coating of dust. One has seen the like of this coating upon furniture in unoccupied houses, and has written his idle thought in it with his finger. I was reminded of this when I noted the faces of some of those women, young mothers carrying babes that were near to death and freedom. How a something in their hearts was written in the dust upon their faces, plain to see, and, Lord, how plain to read! For it was the track of tears. One of these young mothers was but a girl, and it hurt me to the heart to read that writing and reflect that it was come up out of the breast of such a child, a breast that ought not to know trouble yet, but only the gladness of the morning of life. And no doubt. She reeled just then, giddy with fatigue, and down came the lash and flicked a flake of skin from her naked shoulder. It stung me as if I'd been hit instead. The master halted the file and jumped from his horse. He stormed and swore at this girl, and said she had made annoyance enough with her laziness, and as this was the last chance he should have, he would settle the account now. She dropped on her knees and put up her hands and began to beg and cry and implore in a passion of terror, but the master gave no attention. He snatched the child from her, and then made the men-slaves who were chained before and behind her throw her on the ground and hold her there and expose her body, and then he laid on with his lash like a madman till her back was flayed, 
"'She shrieking and struggling well piteously. "'One of the men who was holding her turned away his face, "'and for this humanity he was reviled and flogged. "'All our pilgrims looked on and commented "'on the expert way in which the whip was handled. "'They were too much hardened by lifelong everyday familiarity with slavery "'to notice that there was anything else in the exhibition "'that invited comment. "'This was what slavery could do "'in the way of ossifying what one may call "'the superior lobe of human feeling.' "'for these pilgrims were kind-hearted people, "'and they would not have allowed that man "'to treat a horse like that. "'I wanted to stop the whole thing "'and set the slaves free. "'But that would not do. "'I must not interfere too much "'and get myself a name "'for riding over the country's laws "'and the citizens' rights roughshod. "'If I lived and prospered, "'I would be the death of slavery. "'That I was resolved upon. "'But I would try to fix it "'so that when I became its executioner, "'it should be by command of the nation.' Just here was the wayside shop of a smith, and now arrived a landed proprietor who had bought this girl a few miles back, deliverable here where her irons could be taken off. They were removed. Then there was a squabble between the gentleman and the dealer as to which should pay the blacksmith. The moment the girl was delivered from her irons, she flung herself, all tears and frantic sobbings, into the arms of the slave who had turned away his face when she was whipped. He strained her to his breast, "'and smothered her face and the child's with kisses, "'and washed them with the rain of his tears. "'I suspected. "'I inquired. "'Yes, I was right. "'It was husband and wife. "'They had to be torn apart by force. "'The girl had to be dragged away, "'and she struggled and fought and shrieked "'like one gone mad, "'till a turn of the road hit her from sight. "'And even after that, "'we could still make out the fading plaint "'of those receding shrieks. "'And the husband and father, "'with his wife and child gone, "'never to be seen by him again in life? "'Well, the look of him, one might not bear at all, "'and so I turned away, "'but I knew I should never get his picture "'out of my mind again, "'and there it is to this day, "'to wring my heartstrings whenever I think of it. "'We put up at the inn in a village just at nightfall, "'and when I rose next morning and looked abroad, "'I was where where a knight came riding "'in the golden glory of a new day, "'and recognized him for night of mine.' "'Sir Ozana Lecure Hardy. "'He was in the gentleman's furnishing line, "'and his missionary specialty was plug hats. "'He was clothed in all steel, "'in the beautifulest armor of the time, "'up to where his helmet ought to have been. "'But he hadn't any helmet. "'He wore a shiny stove-pipe hat, "'and was ridiculous a spectacle "'as one might want to see. "'It was another of my surreptitious schemes "'for extinguishing knighthood "'by making it grotesque and absurd.' Sir Ozana's saddle was hung about with leather hat-boxes, and every time he overcame a wandering knight, he swore him into my service and fitted him with a plug and made him wear it. I dressed and ran down to welcome Sir Ozana and get his news. "'How is trade?' I asked. "'Ye will note that I have but these four left, yet they were sixteen, whereas I got them from Camelot.' "'Why, you've certainly done nobly, Sir Ozana. Where have you been foraging of late?' "'I am but now come from the Valley of Holiness. "'Please you, sir. "'I am pointed for that place myself. "'Is there anything stirring in the monkery more than common?' "'By the mass ye may not question it. "'Give him good feed, boy, and stint it now, "'and thou valuest thy crown. "'So get ye lightly to the table and do even as I bid. "'Sir, it is perious news I bring, and be these pilgrims? "'Then ye may not do better, good folk.' "'Then gather and hear the tale I have to tell, "'sit that concerneth you, 
for as much as ye go find that ye will not find, and seek that ye will seek in vain, my life being hostage for my word, and my word and message being these, namely, that a hap has happened, whereof the like has not been seen no more but once this two hundred years, which was the first and last time that that sad misfortune strake the holy valley, in that form, by commandment of the Most High, whereto by reasons just, and causes thereunto contributing, wherein the matter... The miraculous font hath ceased to flow! This shout burst from twenty pilgrim mouths at once. Ye say, well, good people, I was verging to it, even when ye spake. Has somebody been washing again? Nay, it is suspected, but none believe it. It is thought to be some other sin, but none with what? How are they feeling about the calamity? None may describe it in words. The font is these nine days dry, the prayers that did begin then, and the lamentations in sackcloth and ashes, and the holy processions. None of these have ceased, nor night nor day. And so the monks and the nuns and the foundings be all exhausted, and do hang up prayers writ upon parchment, sit that no strength is left in man to lift up voice. And at last they sent for thee, Sir Boss, to try magic and enchantment, and if you could not come, then was the messenger to fetch Merlin. And he is there these three days now, and saith he will fetch that water, though he burst a globe and wreck its kingdoms to accomplish it. And right bravely doth he work his magic, and call upon his hellions to hide them hither and help. But not a whiff of moisture hath he started yet, even so much as might qualify as mist upon a copper mirror. And ye count not the barrel of sweat he sweateth betwixt sun and sun over the dire labors of his task. And if ye, and if ye, Breakfast was ready. As soon as it was over, I showed to Sir Ozana these words which I had written on the inside of his hat. Chemical Department, Laboratory Extension, Section G, PXXP, sent two of first size, two of number three, and six of number four, together with the proper complementary details, and two of my trained assistants. And I said, Now get you to Camelot as fast as you can fly, brave knight, and show the writing to Clarence and tell him to have these required matters in the Valley of Holiness with all possible dispatch. I will well, Sir Boss. And he was off. The Lone Ranger We'll return with Chapter 22, right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 22, The Holy Fountain. The pilgrims were human beings, otherwise they would have acted differently. They had come a long and difficult journey, and now when the journey was nearly finished, and they learned that the main thing they had come for had ceased to exist, they didn't do as horses or cats or angleworms would probably have done, turn back and get at something profitable. No, Anxious as they had been before to see the miraculous fountain, they were as much as forty times as anxious now to see the place where it had used to be. There is no accounting for human beings. We made good time, and a couple of hours before sunset we stood upon the high confines of the Valley of Holiness, and our eyes swept it from end to end and noted its features. That is, its large features. These were the three masses of buildings— they were distant and isolated temporalities, shrunken to toy constructions in the lonely waste of what seemed a desert, and was. 
"'Such a scene is always mournful. "'It is so impressively still, "'and looks so steeped in death. "'But there was a sound here "'which interrupted the stillness "'only to add to its mournfulness. "'This was the faint far sound of tolling bells "'which floated fitfully to us on the passing breeze, "'and so faintly, so softly, "'that we hardly knew whether we had heard it "'with our ears or with our spirits. "'We reached the monastery before dark, "'and there the males were given lodging, "'but the women were sent over to the nunnery. "'The bells were close at hand now, "'and their solemn booming smote upon the ear "'like a message of doom.' A superstitious despair possessed the heart of every monk and published itself in his ghastly face. Everywhere these black-robed, soft sandals, tallow-visaged specters appeared, flitted about, and disappeared, noiseless as the creatures of a troubled dream, and as uncanny. The old abbot's joy to see me was pathetic, even to tears, but he did the shedding himself. He said, "'Delay not, son,' "'but get to thy saving work, "'and we bring not the water back again, "'and soon we are ruined, "'and the good work of two hundred years must end. "'And see thou do it with enchantments that be holy, "'for the church will not endure "'that work in her cause be done by devil's magic. "'When I go to work, father, "'be sure there will be no devil's work connected with it. "'I shall use no arts to come of the devil, "'and no elements not created by the hand of God. "'But is Merlin working strictly on pious lines?' "'Ah, he said he would, my son, he said he would, "'and took oath to make his promise good. "'Well, in that case, let him proceed. "'But surely you will not sit idle by, but help?' "'I will not answer to mixed methods, father. "'Neither would it be professional courtesy. Two of a trade must not underbid each other. "'We might as well cut rates and be done with it. "'It would arrive at that in the end. "'Merlin has the contract.' "'No other magician can touch it till he throws it up. "'But I will take it from him. "'It is a terrible emergency, and the act is thereby justified. "'And if it were not so, who will give law to the church? "'The church giveth law to all, "'and what she wills to do, that she may do, hurt whom it may. "'I will take it from him. "'You shall begin upon the moment.' "'It may not be, father. "'No doubt, as you say, where power is supreme,' One can do as one likes and suffer no injury. But we poor magicians are not so situated. Merlin is a very good magician in a small way, and he has quite a neat provincial reputation. He is struggling, doing the best he can, and it would not be etiquette for me to take his job until he himself abandons it. The abbot's face lighted. Ah, that is simple. There are ways to persuade him to abandon it. No, no, father. It skills not. "'as these people say. "'If he were persuaded against his will, "'he would load that well with a malicious enchantment "'which would balk me until I found out its secret. "'It might take a month. "'I could set up a little enchantment of mine, "'which I call the telephone, "'and he could not find out its secret in a hundred years. "'Yes, you perceive, he might block me for a month. "'Would you like to risk a month in a dry time like this?' "'A month! "'The mere thought of it maketh me to shudder.' "'Have it thy way, my son, but my heart is heavy with this disappointment. "'Leave me, and let me wear my spirit with weariness and waiting, "'even as I have done these ten long days, "'counterfeiting thus the thing that is called rest, "'the prone body making outward sign of repose, where inwardly is none. "'Of course, it would have been best all round, 
for Merlin to waive etiquette and quit and call it half a day, since he would never be able to start that water, for he was a true magician of the time, which is to say, the big miracles, the ones that gave him his reputation, always had the luck to be performed when nobody but Merlin was present. He couldn't start this well with all this crowd around to see. A crowd was as bad for a magician's miracle in that day as it was for a spiritualist miracle in mine. There was sure to be some skeptic on hand to turn up the gas at the crucial moment and spoil everything. But I did not want Merlin to retire from the job until I was ready to take hold of it effectively myself, and I could not do that until I got my things from Camelot, and that would take another two or three days. My presence gave the monks hope and cheered them up a good deal, insomuch that they ate a square meal that night for the first time in ten days. As soon as their stomachs had been properly reinforced with food, their spirits began to rise fast. When the mead began to go round, they rose faster. By the time everybody was half seas over, the holy community was in good shape to make a night of it, so we stayed by the board and put it through on that line. Matters got to be very jolly. Good old questionable stories were told that made the tears run down and cavernous mouths stand wide and the round bellies shake with laughter, and questionable songs were bellowed out in a mighty chorus that drowned the boom of the tolling bells. At last I ventured a story myself, and vast was the success of it. Not right off, of course, for the native of those islands does not, as a rule, dissolve upon the early applications of a humorous thing, but the fifth time I told it, they began to crack in places. The eighth time I told it, they began to crumble. At the twelfth repetition, they fell apart in chunks, and at the fifteenth, they disintegrated, and I got a broom and swept them up. This language is figurative, of course. Those islanders, well, they are slow pay at first, in the matter of return for your investment of effort, but in the end, they make the pay of all of their nations poor and small by contrast. I was at the well next day betimes. Merlin was there, enchanting away like a beaver, but not raising the moisture. He was not in a pleasant humor, and every time I hinted that perhaps this contract was a shade too hefty for a novice, he unlimbered his tongue and cursed like a bishop, French bishop of the Regency days, I mean. Matters were about as I expected to find them. The fountain was an ordinary well. It had been dug in the ordinary way and stoned up in the ordinary way. There was no miracle about it. Even the lie that had created its reputation was not miraculous. I could have told it myself, with one hand tied behind me. The well was in a dark chamber which stood in the center of a cut stone chapel, whose walls were hung with pious pictures of a workmanship that would have made a chromo feel good. Pictures historically commemorative of curative miracles which had been achieved by the waters when nobody was looking. That is, nobody but angels. They are always on deck when there is a miracle to the fore, so as to get put in the picture, perhaps. Angels are as fond of that as a fire company. Look at the old masters. The well chamber was dimly lighted by lamps. The water was drawn with a windlass and chain by monks, and poured into troughs, which delivered it into stone reservoirs outside in the chapel, when there was water to draw, I mean, and none but monks could enter the well chamber. I entered it, for I had temporary authority to do so, by courtesy of my professional brother and subordinate. But he hadn't entered it himself. He did everything by incantations. He never worked his intellect. If he had stepped in there and used his eyes, instead of his disordered mind, he could have cured the well by natural means, and then turned it into a miracle in the customary way. But no, he was an old numbskull, 
a magician who believed in his own magic, and no magician can thrive who is handicapped with a superstition like that. I had an idea that the well had sprung a leak, that some of the wall stones near the bottom had fallen and exposed fissures that allowed the water to escape. I measured the chain, ninety-eight feet. Then I called in a couple of monks, locked the door, took a candle, and made them lower me in the bucket. When the chain was all paid out, the candle confirmed my suspicion. A considerable section of the wall was gone, exposing a good big fissure. I almost regretted that my theory about the well's trouble was correct, because I had another one that had a showy point or two about it for a miracle. I remembered that in America, many centuries later, when an oil well ceased to flow, they used to blast it out with a dynamite torpedo. If I should find this well dry, and no explanation of it, I could astonish these people most notably by having a person of no especial value drop a dynamite bomb into it. It was my idea to appoint Merlin. However, it was plain that there was no occasion for the bomb. One cannot have everything the way he would like it. A man has no business to be depressed by a disappointment, anyway. He ought to make up his mind to get even. And that's what I did. I said to myself, I am in no hurry. I can wait. That bomb will come good yet. And it did, too. When I was above ground again, I turned out the monks and let down a fish line. The well was 150 feet deep, and there was 41 feet of water in it. I called in a monk and asked, How deep is the well? That, sir, I would not, having never been told. How does the water usually stand in it? Near to the top. These two centuries, as the testimony goeth, brought down to us through our predecessors. It was true, as to recent times at least, for there was a witness to it, and better witness than a monk. Only about twenty or thirty feet of the chain showed wear and use. The rest of it was unworn and rusty. What had happened when the well gave out that other time? Without doubt, some practical person had come along and mended the leak, and then had come up and told the abbot he had discovered by divination that if the sinful bath were destroyed, the well would flow again. The leak had befallen again now, and these children would have prayed, and processioned, and toiled their bells for heavenly succor, till they all dried up and blew away, and no innocent of them would ever have thought to drop a fish line into the well, or go down in it and find out what was really the matter. Old habit of mind is one of the toughest things to get away from in the world. It transmits itself like physical form and feature, and for a man in those days to have had an idea that his ancestors hadn't had would have brought him under suspicion of being illegitimate. I said to the monk, It is a difficult miracle to restore water in a dry well, but we will try, if my brother Merlin fails. Brother Merlin is a very passable artist, but only in the parlor magic line, and he may not succeed. In fact, is not likely to succeed. But that should be nothing to his discredit. The man that could do this kind of miracle knows enough to keep hotel. Of hotel? It's what you call hostile. The man that can do this miracle can keep hostile. I can do this miracle. I shall do this miracle. Yet I do not try to conceal from you that it is a miracle to tax the occult powers to the last strain. None knoweth that truth better than the Brotherhood, indeed, for it is a record that aforetime it was perious difficult and took a year. Nevertheless, God send you good success, and to that end we will pray for you, he said. As a matter of business, it was a good idea to get the notion around that the thing was difficult. 
"'Many a small thing has been made large "'by the right kind of advertising. "'That monk was filled up with the difficulty of this enterprise. "'He would fill up the others. "'In two days the solicitude would be booming. "'On my way home at noon I met Sandy. "'She had been sampling the hermits. "'I said, "'I would like to do that myself. "'This is Wednesday. "'Is there a matinee?' "'A witch, please you, sir?' "'A matinee. "'Do they keep open afternoons?' "'Who? "'The hermits, of course. "'Keep open?' "'Uh, yes, keep open. "'Isn't that plain enough? "'Do they knock off at noon?' "'Knock off?' Uh, "'Knock off. Uh, "'Yes, knock off. "'What's the matter with knock off? "'I never saw such a dunderhead. "'Can't you understand anything at all?' In plain terms, do they shut up shop? Draw the game. Bank the fires. Shut up shop? Draw? There, never mind. Let it go. You make me tired. You can't seem to understand the simplest thing. I would I might please thee, sir, and it is to me dole and sorrow that I fail. Albeit, sith I am but a simple damsel, and taught of none, "'being from the cradle, unbaptized in those deep waters of learning, "'that do anoint with a sovereign him that partaketh of that most noble sacrament, "'investing him with reverent state to the mental eye of the humble mortal, "'who, by bar and lack of that great consecration, "'seeth in his own unlearned estate, "'but a symbol of that other sort of lack and loss "'which men do publish to the pitying eye with sackcloth trappings, "'whereon the ashes of grief do lie be powdered and be strewn. "'And so, when such shall in the darkness of his mind "'encounter these golden phrases of high mystery, "'these shut-up shops, and draw the games, and bank the fires, "'it is but by the grace of God that he burst not for envy "'of the mind that can beget, "'and tongue that can deliver so great and mellow-sounding miracles of speech. "'And if there do ensue confusion in that humbler mind, "'and failure to divine the meanings of these wonders, "'then if so be this miscomprehension is not vain but sooth and true.' Witchy well, it is the very substance of worshipful dear homage, and may not lightly be misprized. Nor had been, and ye had noted this complexion of mood and mind, and understood that that I would not, could not, and that I could not and might not, nor yet might nor could, nor might not nor could not, might be, might be by advantage, turned to the desired wood, and so I pray you mercy of my fault. And that ye will of your kindness and your charity forgive it, good my master. "'and most dear Lord. "'I couldn't make it all out, that is the details, "'but I got the general idea, and enough of it too, to be ashamed. "'It was not fair to spring those nineteenth-century technicalities "'upon the untutored infant of the sixth "'and then rail at her because she couldn't get their drift. "'And when she was making the honest best drive at it she could, too, "'and no fault of hers that she couldn't fetch the home plate. "'And so I apologized.' Then we meandered pleasantly away toward the hermit holes in sociable converse together, and better friends than ever. I was gradually coming to have a mysterious and shuddery reverence for this girl. Nowadays, whenever she pulled off from the station and got her train fairly started on one of those horizonless transcontinental sentences of hers, it was borne in upon me that I was standing in the awful presence of the mother of the German language. I was so impressed with this, that sometimes when she began to empty one of those sentences on me, I unconsciously took the very attitude of reverence, and stood uncovered, and if words had been water, I had been drowned, sure. She had exactly the German way. Whatever was in her mind to be delivered, 
whether a mere remark or a sermon or a cyclopedia or the history of a war, she would get it into a single sentence or die. Whenever the literary German dives into a sentence, that is the last you are going to see of him till he emerges on the other side of his Atlantic with his verb in his mouth. We drifted from hermit to hermit all the afternoon. It was a most strange menagerie. The chief emulation among them seemed to be to see which could manage to be the uncleanest and most prosperous with vermin. Their manner and attitudes were the last expression of complacent self-righteousness. It was one anchorite's pride to lie naked in the mud and let the insects bite him and blister him unmolested. It was another's to lean against a rock all day long, conspicuous to the admiration of the throng of pilgrims and prey. It was another's to go naked and crawl around on all fours. It was another's to drag about with him, year in and year out, eighty pounds of iron. It was another's to never lie down when he slept, but to stand among the thorn bushes and snore when there were pilgrims around to look. A woman who had the white hair of age, and no other apparel, was black from crown to heel with forty-seven years of holy abstinence from water. Groups of gazing pilgrims stood around all and every of these strange objects, lost in reverent wonder and envious of the fleckless sanctity which these pious austerities had won for them from an exacting heaven. By and by we went to see one of the supremely great ones. He was a mighty celebrity. His fame had penetrated all Christendom. The noble and the renowned journeyed from the remotest lands on the globe to pay him reverence. His stand was in the center of the widest part of the valley, and it took all that space to hold his crowds. His stand was a pillar sixty feet high, with a broad platform on the top of it. He was now doing what he had been doing every day for twenty years up there, bowing his body ceaselessly and rapidly almost to his feet. It was his way of praying. I timed him with a stopwatch, and he made 1,244 revolutions in 24 minutes and 46 seconds. It seemed a pity to have all this power going to waste. It was one of the most useful motions in mechanics, the pedal movement, so I made a note in my memorandum book, purposing some day to apply a system of elastic cords to him and run a sewing machine with it. I afterward carried out that scheme and got five years' good service out of him, in which time he turned out upward of 18,000 first-rate toe-linen in shirts, which was ten a day. I worked him Sundays and all. He was going Sundays, the same as weekdays, and it was no use to waste the power. These shirts cost me nothing but just a mere trifle for the materials. I furnished those myself. It would not have been right to make him do that. And they sold like smoke to pilgrims at a dollar and a half apiece, which was the price of fifty cows or a blooded racehorse in Arthurdom. They were regarded as a perfect protection against sin, and advertised as such by my knights everywhere, with the paint pot and stencil plate, insomuch that there was not a cliff or boulder or a dead wall in England, but you could read it at a mile distance. By the only genuine St. Stylite, patronized by the nobility, patent applied for. There was more money in the business than one knew what to do with. As it extended, I brought out a line of goods suitable for kings, and a knobby thing for duchesses and that sort, with ruffles down the forehatch and the running gear clued up with a feather stitch to leeward, then hauled aft with a back stay and triced up with a half turn in the standing, rigging forward of the weather gaskets. Yes, it was a daisy. But about that time, I noticed that the motive power had taken to standing on one leg, and I found that there was something the matter with the other one. So I stocked the business and unloaded, 
taking Sir Bors de Ganis into camp financially, along with certain of his friends, for the works stopped within a year, and the good saint got him to his rest. But he had earned it. I can say that for him. When I saw him that first time, however, his personal condition will not quite bear description here. You can read it in The Lives of the Saints. All the details concerning the hermits in this chapter are from Lecky, but greatly modified. This book not being a history, but only a tale, the majority of the historian's frank details were too strong for reproduction in it. Editor Thanks for joining us for chapters 21 and 22 of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. If you're enjoying our story, please do send us a review. We appreciate reviews. That's for 1001 Stories for the Road. We do have a couple of recent reviews I'd like to share with you. First, five stars. Wonderful. The entire 1001 network is wonderful to listen to. That one from N.S. Thomp, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one. I haven't even listened yet. Talk about blind faith. Five stars. It's so good, even though I've never listened. But I trust these reviews. I'm also currently fighting a dragon with a dog toy while learning to speak four languages and playing speed chess. The ads at the start are really getting me through middle school depression. That one from Frogmaster, Apple Podcast, U.S. And thank you, Frogmaster. In fact, give this a listen. I think you're going to enjoy it very much because someday you're going to be the boss. Until next Sunday night, everyone, it's 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.